This is it. The putt to win the tournament. If you sink it, the championship is yours. But on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Is this how you're running your business? Poor visibility because you're still relying on spreadsheets and outdated finance software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, budget, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow, all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite. And right now, through the end of the year, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program to those ready to upgrade at NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Head to NetSuite.com slash C-Suite for special end-of-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Small Biz America. The Brain. It's back to business basics with author Jeffrey J. Fox. He's the author of Rain, What a Paperboy Learned About Business, How to Get to the Top, How to Land Your Dream Job, The Dollarization Principle, and How to Become a CEO, and many others. He joins us on the line with his latest, How to Be a Fierce Competitor, What Winning Companies and Great Managers Do During Rough Times. Jeffrey, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I've got my signed copy here, and thanks for that. By the way, a delightful and very inspiring wake-up call for any business leader written in the Jeffrey J. Fox signature, no-nonsense, matter-of-fact style, particularly in the front. This setup is, is incredibly impactful. So if you listen, um, folks, listen to these chapter headings, bad times are good times, hustle, 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 the difference between leaders and managers, manages you would invest. I mean, this is a total array of... Again, a, a huge wake-up call, very grounding and sort of small business fundamental-esque in a sense. I'm curious, Jeffrey, where did, where did this come from? What informs this kind of a project for you? Is it the, the uh, marketing experience you've had, your imagination, probably a combination of all of the above? Well, you know, I'm out there every day. I think maybe one difference between um, <clears throat> me as a book writer, if you will, is that it is... Um, not my only thing. I mean, I'm a I'm a business practitioner. I'm not a, a professor or something like that. And because of that, I'm out there in the I'm out there in the marketplace every day, working with companies large and small, and seeing what they're doing in tough times. It is yeah. remarkable, however, how big companies forget that they are really customer first or should be customer first, and small companies do not. So I think people, as they go up the corporate ladder in large organizations, should be constantly watching what the small business player does, because uh, that's what the big corporations lose. I mean, I just am still dumbfounded as we sit here that American motor car companies, in order to do something, cut their dealerships. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's 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 getting rid of your sales force, and they they got rid of. And a small company would never do that. A, a small businessman would would never fire his profit positive sales force. A small company that sells through retailers would never fire retailers that were de- delivering profits and gross margin to the company. But the motor car companies did. Why? Because. Half the lessons in that book apply to companies like that, that get bloated, have silos, have bureaucracy, who who don't have leaders, 
who have uh, data-driven managers only. I mean, it's it's remarkable what's happened in some of these businesses, and that's why the the book is out there because these are tough times, and they're not. These are uh, stagnant tough times. It's not going to go away real quick. Companies have got to get going if they're going to survive. Yeah, we have a structural shift in the economy, the employment market. Clearly, uh, it's a whole new game we're playing. The book is amazing in that it it takes sort of what I'll call the the pilot's cockpit, if if you will. These are the things that we need to wake up, smell the coffee, and be doing and thinking about all the time and relentlessly. Every day. In fact, I think one of the best lessons in this book and by the way, I like this book. It's my edgiest. Um, <laughs> I noticed. <laughs> well, you know, because That's you great. really do have to wake people up, right. David. I mean, this right. is this is absurd. I mean, I see. I saw a company the other day where the guy closed his business doors. A, a small retailer closed his business doors, not forever, but for part of the day because he wasn't usually very busy between three and five. It's, an, well, it's almost an employee kind of mentality, it, isn't it? it? It's a hunker-down mentality, and it's, it's got to be stopped. But anyway, what I was going to say, this daily thing, one of the lessons in this book that I think is so easy to do, or at least it's easy to sound like it can be done, but really can be done easily, yeah. and it's unbelievably critical, is to have a company-wide daily sales meeting every single day for five or ten minutes. It's nothing for companies to have a daily uh, uh, a daily exercise moment or a daily safety lesson like the oil companies do, you know, don't let your children drink the stuff that's under the kitchen sink kind of thing. Yeah. A daily five-minute, ten-minute sales meeting for every single employee, including accounts receivables and, and uh, custodians. Everybody in a company should be focused on profitable top line. Two major themes that I noted, and then I want to pick some highlights here. We're visiting with Jeffrey J. Fox. Tough times need to trigger the fierce competitor in pursuit of an opportunity with no questions asked. It would be very easy as a small business owner to close for part of the day. It's really a scarcity idea, isn't it, to do that, to hunker down? It's intuitive to hunker down in tough times. I mean, that's the fight or flee kind of thing that humans and animals and everybody have 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 learned through centuries. Yeah. However, the data doesn't doesn't support that. Since the first panic of eighteen twenty three, through the Civil War, which is a, was in fact an economic downturn, to the panic of nineteen oh six, to the Great Depression, the twelve recessions since then, yeah. the data are irrefutable. Those companies and those individual salespeople who outsell, outmarket, outtrain, out innovate, emerge from the downturn in a stronger market share and profit position. So it might be uh, comfortable to hunker down and to not hear no from every customer you call on, but it doesn't make sense. It, it's way better to get out there and make calls and hear no's because the one yes trumps 100 no's. It, you know, we saw a study the other day that in tough times, you know, salespeople that work in large organizations make 30% fewer sales calls than they do in good times. Why? Well, because they fear rejection, they have all kinds of socially acceptable excuses. Yeah. You know, the, cu- the customer's not there, the customer's downsized, the customer doesn't have a budget, the customer won't want to see me, all which are false. So they're thinking into the customer's head rather than just doing what the, the job of doing what they do, which is selling more stuff. Get out there. If you can help a customer reduce their costs, improve innovation, raise their revenues, avoid future costs, they will talk to you now more than ever. 
Chapter 8. I visit customers in stores, says Ernest Gallo of... uh Gallo Wine. This is uh, years ago. You're pulling uh, some some great examples here. Uh, This is Ernest's answer to describing what he does in his business. I visit customers in stores. Well, Ernest Gallo is a fierce competitor, of course, and he and Julio Gallo started their winery uh, with an $800 uh, $800 of their savings and a $5,000 loan in the middle of the prohibition. There were 800 California... (laughs) There were... 800 California, California wineries in business at the time, many of them selling sacramental wine. That's how they got around the prohibition thing. Ernest and Julio had this pact. Ernest was the marketing savant, the genius seller, yeah. and, and Julio was the winemaker. Okay. And, their, and their pact was, I will, make, I will sell all the wine you make, and you make all the wine I sell. And then one Labor Day weekend, he called up one of his regional managers, and he said, I'm coming in on Thursday, and we're going to do... And the guy said to him, but Ernest, this is Labor Day weekend. He said, exactly. And on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, whatever, he made 100 calls on retailers and distributors. And that's what he did. And when the people in the company knew that Ernest Gallo was making sales calls on Saturday and Labor Day, believe me, they worked harder on Monday and Tuesday. So at any rate... At the at the end of his career, he he meets Michael Mondavi, who's the the son of the charismatic uh, Napa Valley wine pioneer Robert Mondavi, and Mike and Ernest said to Michael, "Do you know what I do?" And Michael said, "Yes, you run the largest winery in the world." He said, "No, I visit stores and talk to customers. I visit customers in stores." You see, that's the difference. They built the largest winery in the world. By going to the stores, talking to retailers, talking to customers. And we talk about this all in sort of the box of tough times, but quite honestly, and I mentioned there were two themes. The other one, of course, is there's no room at all for any complacency in business anywhere. You have to constantly be looking around the corner. I don't know what I don't know, etc. Well, that's exactly right. And the fact, the famous George Dorio, who started what is now called... Uh, investment banking, equity banking, that kind of thing, Uh, venture funds. Mm -hmm. He famously said once, somebody somewhere is developing a product to obsolete yours. And so the great leaders, uh, the fierce competitors, seem to have a a contradictory personality. They are ever fearful. That is, they are always constantly watching the marketplace, the competitors, the changing moods of customers, um, the ridiculous government regulations that pop out of nowhere. They're ever fearful about that. Yet at the same time, they show fearlessness. They go out into the field. They call on the tough customer. They make calls with their salespeople. They, 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 They run the provocative ad. They try the the inspirational promotion. So, so fierce leaders are there. They're never complacent. They're always trying to improve. They're always trying to rip out bad costs, always trying to speed innovation. And they are relentless about it. I mean, they're ethical as hell. They're great companies. They, they pay lots of little league uh, uh, money in their local towns, but they are out there every day. Jeffrey, you just pointed to the concept you introduce in the book, Leaders have the capacity to deal with ambivalence. Let's talk about that a bit. Right. Well, the biggest difference between leaders and managers, and this has got nothing to do with the title, by the way. I mean, you could be the CEO and not be a leader, and you could be a brand manager and be a terrific leader. Yes. But the, but the difference is that leaders can deal with ambiguity, with lack of facts, with not having all the data. And they have to pull the trigger and decide. Managers, on the other hand, 
are really kind of at a loss if they don't have complete data, if they don't know what is perfect to make a decision. So they tend really to uh, maintain the status quo, to deploy, to execute, you know, to administer, that kind of thing. Nothing wrong with it, of course. And that's what that's what shareholders want. They want great leaders and great managers. But the difference probably is that the leader has to decide with uh, glaring unknowns. Jeffrey Fox, I love the the story. And let me get his name right. Is it is it Kresge? Krage? S S Kresge. Kresge. Okay, Kresge. it looks like Kresge. Doesn't Kresge was the founder of Kmart. That's correct. And before that, and, and incidentally, he he founded. Um, Kmart in 1962, and what your listeners might be amazed at is that was the same year that Walmart started and Target stores started. Mm, something was in the air. Yeah, three fabulous, fabulous organizations started in uh, 1962. Well, S.S. Kresge grew up on a hard scrabble farm in Pennsylvania or someplace like that, <laughs> and he was, uh, you know, he was he started the first five and ten cent stores the the dime stores if you will and he talked about everything in terms of dimes i think when he when his company made the first 10 million he called it 100 million dimes or something like that yeah. now he was as frugal as they come yet he invested his entire life savings eight thousand dollars which he had made as a traveling salesman he invested that to start his first stores and so in 1953 he was honored by Harvard Business School, where I went, by the way, which they had Kresge Hall, which I had lunch and dinner and breakfast in, uh, you know, every single day for two years. <laughs> Great Kresge Hall. Yeah. Had no idea at the time its provenance, its legacy. Sure. But in 1953, um, they invited uh, S.S. Kresge to come after his donation, which started the Kresge Hall, to come and to speak to the faculty and the, and the student body and what have you. Yeah. And S.S. Kresge, frugal, parsimonious, terrific guy. I mean, he started paid holidays and paid vacations and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, a master genius business person. He got up to address this crowd of eagerly waiting folks, listening for words of wealth and wisdom. And he said, I never made a dime talking and sat down. I love this. The illustration is beautiful. They're still talking about that at Harvard Business School today. (laughs) Now, you're you're involved with marketing amongst your other activities. I mean, there's a distinction to draw here, isn't there? Right. There is a distinction. Um, You know, that's my company, Fox & Company. We're a marketing management consulting company. And and the distinction is that uh, people have to realize that if you don't tell them, you won't sell them. You have to outreach in a million different ways. And there are only, according to Peter Drucker, there are only two, there are only two sustaining functions in a corporation. They are marketing and innovation. Marketing is, my, my definition at least, is the profitable attraction, identification, getting and keeping of good customers. That's marketing. That covers everything. And innovation, of course, is how you constantly work at improving your processes, improving new products, doing things in a different and better way. That's all it is. Chapter 15, President Andrew Jackson calls it the kitchen cabinet. What a cool way to talk about creating an inner circle of advisors. Oh, that's right. That's the phrase, the kitchen cabinet. That's where it came from. When Andrew Jackson was president, um, even though he had a, a cabinet, he had two, three, or four friends that he really valued their judgment on, that they were, they were always very direct with him, but of course very polite, and so forth, but they wouldn't let Andrew Jackson make a mistake. And to keep their 
privacy and confidentiality, they used to go in and out of the White House through the kitchen door, ergo the kitchen cabinet. And every single listener here and every single CEO and, and top leader really should have a kitchen cabinet, whether it's one person or three or four. It's people who they can entirely trust to give them the unvarnished truth. Is it better? Yeah, facts. yeah. I was going to ask: Is it better if they're not? They don't have a, an employee relationship. Let's say, should they be decoupled from the politics of working? I would say ninety-eight percent of the time, yes. In other words, the problem: every CEO who hears this knows this fact. It is a lonely job. <laughs> you are yes. alone at the top. I mean. Everybody who works for you are good people, but they have personal agendas. You know, they're always constantly uh, aspiring with colleagues to get more money for their divisions or more money for their brands or the best people are allowed to hire more or whatever. And, you know, the boards today, typically boards today, are, you know, they're really not coaching and mentoring of CEOs. They're really more and more so, especially says Brandis Oxley, they're really more watchdogs looking out for the shareholders. So the CEO has a very lonely job. He, therefore, needs outsiders. He needs people that can be consigliere, but who are completely free of the politics of the situation and who are free to give unvarnished advice, even if it's difficult. I mean, that's Frankly, that's what I do every day. You know, we're uh, I'm rented by CEO clients. I, I don't work there. I'm not going to. I don't want to be a CEO. I don't want to be the next COO of the guy's company, or the next VP marketing. I'm in it for Fox and Company. So my job is to tell our clients what they need to know, and to tell them in a polite way, not what they want to hear. What do they? What are they tending to lose sight of now? And of course, the book points to a lot of these, I'm sure. But what are you encountering in the field where we're still? Again, it's a structural paradigm shift in the economy, in the American economy, anyway. Right. Well, that's correct, and there's a lots of reasons for that. But um, right, the the number one problem in business is that environments change and companies do not. The same thing with the sales guy, even on the micro level of a salesperson. You know, markets change, competitors change, customers change, and the salesperson doesn't. So when you have an organization that is facing new um, environmental issues or new regulations or, or sea changes in the way customers get information and the way they communicate with each other, you've got to adapt you just can't sit there and say, "Oh, we've inv- I just invested a million dollars last last week in in this email system, and email marketing is now passe or whatever." Yeah, they they have just got to deal with the. That's why upstart companies knock off giant behemoths because the behemoth is so invested in its old way. Its managers are so invested in its old way. They can't get out of their way. So the, the young company knocks them off. Yep. New thought, new thinking, no baggage. No baggage. And that's why sometimes companies need a new CEO, because the new broom can sweep clean. And, and that is what boards are looking for, a guy that can come in, and he, he doesn't really, he's not really psychologically, personally, friendly, emotionally, whatever, committed to 
the old way of doing yeah. things. Uh, time for a dose of uh, selective amnesia. Great stuff. How to Be a Fierce Competitor is the book. Author Jeffrey J. Fox has been joining us. Fox and Company. Jeffrey, what's the website? It's www.foxandcompany, F-O-X-A-N-D-C-O-M-P-A-N-Y.com. And uh, it's, you know, a, a, it's a, a work in progress, I might add, because we just sort of redid it, and I'm going to be adding something that your listeners might add, like, and that's called the Fox Box. Uh-huh. And this is a pickup, by the way, David, from some of my cu- clients. Some of my clients have what they call, uh, metaphorically, a fox box. And yeah. what, the, what the guy does is he mentally puts the problem in the fox box, and then when I show up uh, every month or every two weeks or whatever, yeah. you know, we go over all those problems. And they can be everything from, should I pave the parking lot, to how do I fire uh, the VP of R&D. Right. And, and the Fox Box makes people relax. And I'm going to have that on our website so people, uh, it's not built yet, but it's, in, it's, in, it's under construction, where people can ask business questions, marketing sales, and even, you know, how to get a job question. Oh, wow. And, oh, uh, wow. and I'll answer them. That's so cool. So yeah. bringing Web 2.0 comes to the Fox uh, website. That's beautiful. Web 3.0, I should say. How to be a fierce competitor, available in bookstores everywhere and online. Jeffrey, always a delight. Thank you so much. Thank you. All the best. Small Biz America. The Brain. Online at smallbizamerica.com. Small Biz. Small Biz America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.